Fuck, I'm hungry. Oh, you didn't eat? Yeah, I haven't eaten yet. Come on, guys. I got to eat after this. Let's hurry up. Where's your Occupy Mars shirt? See, you got Oh, yeah, I got, I got this. I went to NASA, guys. What do you yeah, mean? You're not that? In Houston, you mean? Yeah. Went to the Kennedy Space Center? Oh, it's so cool, cool, right? It was amazing. And because, like, you know, that's like a curious child. They actually let you do a, a side thing. I, I, did you go to the astronaut training center? No. They have oh, that. Fucking cool, bro. I got to see the astronauts training. I got to meet some astronauts. It's like a little kid. Fuck. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it was me oh, and fuck. Oh, best day of my how, how would they possibly mistake you as a child? Because I was like asking a million questions. And then someone was like, you know, like. Like asking, are me, you a good boy? Do you want to go? Yeah, she was like, I was like, I learned to be the astronaut when I was a kid. All right, come, come with me, sir. Come, with come, me. child. Where are we going? Come, come, small child. All right, guys. Dave is about to be hangry. Transformed it to the food Hulk. So let's begin. Get started, yeah. please. I'm so hungry. Done. Yeah. Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to the 13th episode of the LLB podcast, Low Level Barbarians from Asia on Asia, with debate and discussion around trending topics. With us, myself, Alex, typically your host of EOA, Man of the High Ground, Dave Chang, who's lucky very hungry. 13. Lucky 13. At the 13th episode, yes, very lucky. Jangan, mm-hmm. the information super connector, finally got a meeting room. Glad you're here. You have a new shirt for us, I see. The Empire did yes. nothing wrong. Yes. And then Andrew G, if you haven't noticed, someone is back with us finally. Missing a few episodes. We went to NASA. He's very happy. He's now in London. He's not leaving London, apparently. Keeps saying he's coming back, but he's not. <laughs> uh, by the way, I just want to clarify. We called this episode 12 Asia. Uh, 15. Oh, no, no, this is 12A. Yeah, 12A. Yeah, 12A. And next week, next one will be 12B. No, sorry. It's just got it backwards, dude. 13 is the Western block yeah. number three. <laughs> Some elevators, you, you don't get 13 and 14. Oh, is it? Oh, so they do Western and Asian? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to yep. And any gods. That's true. <laughs> Speaking of the gods, uh, Asia is finally opening up. The gods have listened to us. All the countries pretty much are now open, right? Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, Indonesia, Singapore. You just need to take a PCR test or some form of a test, depending on the time zone, one or two days before coming to the country. Uh, which begs a question, Andrew, why are you not back in Malaysia? I, I got to take a test, bro. Yeah. You got to take a test? <laughs> once, I, once I find this test, I'm back. Uh, yes, PCR tests are so hard to find in London, yeah. aren't they? But one of them needs to be doing these the other side. That's true. That's true. You are our global correspondent. That's right. That's right. I mean, I'm not sure what is there to talk about Asia opening up. I mean, I'm just excited that I'm going to be traveling soon. I'm going to Singapore soon, probably. After that, a few other countries, maybe go diving here and there. I don't know. This is why I'm coming back. You know, now that you guys are leaving, I'll finally have a place. Oh, I see. Uh, Asia wasn't <laughs> big enough for the four of us. Yeah, not enough, man. So, Alex, when we talk about Asia, do it mean Kuala Lumpur? Yeah, yeah, I'll be back in KL with it in this week or next. What week. do you mean? Are all of Asia's open? No, I mean not China. Not, obviously. not China. China. China Shanghai went now. on a full <laughs> lockdown, indefinite lockdown. So sorry, I should say Southeast Asia is all open. Yeah, uh, North Asia pretty much open too, right? Except for China. 
and North Korea and Taiwan. Well, North Korea, that's a forever thing, right? Oh, Taiwan, yeah. Taiwan, Japan, Taiwan, Japan, Taiwan. I think so, right? Not too sure. But no, ski season must have been rough for them, huh? This year, like, the amount of countries. No, I'm serious. Like, you think about how much tourism has been lost. It's not that much last year. Like, the, the scene for like, just a lot of major cities, even London, or even city, like, restaurant closures, because the high, hotel closures, because the high, like, it's basically, and there's a lot of consolidation, right? Where they had cash and buy up the other. Well, I'm kind of yeah. curious, like, who, who benefits from this reopening the most? Oh, I mean, that's clear, I think, right? I mean, if you, if you look at, like, the list of the industries that were most adversely affected by the COVID lockdowns, like, basically in order, it's like airlines, right? Uh, wow. Leisure facilities, so your, your hotel, your travel. Um, and then for, I actually, because for some reason, oil and gas drilling, which actually makes sense because I guess people drive yeah. less, there's less demand for oil. Uh, auto parts and equipment, which also makes sense. And then um, uh, restaurants, restos, right? So those are the five that I think are going to bounce back the most. I think it's a more interesting question because we talk a lot about on this podcast about like these big tech companies like Shopee and Grab uh, and and go to right and i think you could make a pretty strong argument that these guys have gotten like a real boost during the covid period uh both because they operate in like e-commerce so the e-commerce business obviously has seen a huge boom uh deliveries as in food delivery and then also uh to a certain extent their fintech businesses right because they all have their proprietary payment platforms built in yeah so i think i think you know if we're going to try and like connect this to theme of the podcast, I think it's a question of like, what's going to happen to these companies uh, in terms of like their marketing costs uh, in conjunction with the fact that we're going into like a higher interest rate environment, right? So I think it just sort of, you know, it creates additional tailwinds or not tailwinds, sorry, headwinds for them as one, you know, their share of wallet is going to drop down because a lot of the people that couldn't travel, couldn't eat out what else can you do, right? You're going to spend your money on mm -hmm. e-commerce and you're going to order food delivery. So theoretically, you would assume that this was like, you know, had a huge depressing effect on their on their um, marketing acquisition costs, but also on the overall supply of the wallet that these guys were capturing. So, I mean, that's that's kind of my take on this. John Gan, you had something to say? I think talking about marketing cost, uh, Andrew will be the best person to comment on that, right? Um, I do hear from people that uh, in terms of customer acquisition, the cost last year, uh, 2021, was already quite high as compared to, to 2020. Um, and also, I think there seems, I mean, from all, all the data tracking, you see that there's a slowing down of, uh, of, uh, of e-commerce growth. But of course, there are different arguments. Some people are saying that, oh, compared to 2018, 2017, it's still faster. And now we're at much higher bit our base, but, um, but of course there's also the other side of the argument. So, so Andrew, e-commerce marketing, how do you see it? So look, if you, if you think about the equation, right, there's two things you have to do here. One is there's an absolute total. So, so there's two parts of this equation. Let's go through the first one first. There's an absolute total of customers that need to be acquired that are typically customers that have access to the internet at a regular basis and have a mobile phone and, uh, have some kind of access to this. Right. So if you think about SRV is right now, that market, that, that M is big, right? Because there's a lot of people getting their first mobile phones, accessing projects for the first time, and then getting into some kind of new payment, right? And so if you, that absolute market is growing, 
And that e-commerce is growing as a subset of that at a faster rate than the other market is growing. So it would catch up at some point, but as long as the first market is they're going to get there. Now the question is how expensive is it to acquire that here's the crazy thing, it doesn't matter. First, as long as you have new customers coming in at a fast rate, right? and you can figure out the dynamics to create more and more repeat purchases from existing customers that you've already acquired to the the app, then what happens is your absolute income ratio, so the, the ratio of your marketing costs as a percentage of overall revenue, will increase speedy rate. Andrew, do you have a as well? Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Andrew. Just quick. Do you have like um like I'm getting like a lot of crackle when you speak. Do you have like headphones or like a no, mic? Just using the microphone on the Mac. Can you yeah. maybe get closer yeah. to the Mac? Like I think. Yeah, maybe put, your, put your mouth closer to the microphone. Yeah. Sorry. Did you guys hear m- most of what I said? Kind of. Okay. I got the gist of it. Cool. Steady state. Yeah, I didn't get much. <laughs> Okay, so I'm the only one that said something. You guys are also let him talk forever. Thanks, guys. And then not, come on. <laughs> I was trying to process like what I heard. We sort of we sort of believe in technology that uh, we eventually figure itself out, even though I can't really see Andrew clearly. I can't hear him clearly, but I believe that uh, uh, the, the amazing yeah. piece of technology that Alex has chosen would eventually render him clearly. Um, okay, so shall we do like what Japanese businessmen do all the time? So I don't understand. Can you repeat it? Can you repeat everything? What was what? What was the gist of what you said? <laughs> so the, the gist of what I said is, even if your CAC goes up, okay, your cost income ratio, the percentage of cost that you spend on overall GMV keeps dec- decreasing on an exponential basis. Oh, because you're you're okay because you're you have more stickiness and higher repurchases, higher so one one is one is repeat purchases and two is like. You know, the rate at which the overall market for people with mobile phones uh, accessing the internet and having some kind of payment solution is still growing exponentially, which means that you're playing catch up to the top of that market, right? Every time you think you've gotten close to, um, to, the, to the scraping the bottom of the barrel, the barrel gets bigger. This isn't the US or Germany where you kind of have it fixed already. The number of people who have like mobile phones. It even it's even still growing in in US. I'd, I'd say Amazon is still growing, so it's it's still the top is still far. Even. Yeah, yeah, but the the rate the rate of the oh, rate, yeah. market yeah. of Asia is much faster, right? Like every That's true. I think something every year like thirty million people get mobile phones for the first time. Right? Yeah. Okay. And so like it's just really, you know what I mean like that just suddenly opens up this whole new universe, and then your CAC for these customers is not higher than your CAC for other customers because they're just the same kind of customers. They just suddenly got introduced to Facebook. Do you still stay in touch with these numbers or like when you were leaving, what was that trend looking like? Because I'm, it's quite, yeah, we got single digit percentage, uh, cost income ratios, right? Okay. Low single digit percentage, which means like, you know, if you're spending 2% of your GMV on, on marketing, whatever. Cause to me, like your, your marketing horizon and the channels you'd be using to acquire probably at this point starts to evolve, right? The market is changing. There are new platforms. There's TikTok now, right? So I would imagine these kind of numbers alter with new ways so, to look so at this, this was this was the second part of the conversation, which I think you guys might not have read. And so what I was saying is eventually all platforms devolve into using two types of marketing. One for intent base, oh, I see what you which mean. is yeah. typically search engine marketing. Yeah. And the second is for uh, non-intent base where you're trying to create intent yeah. and w- in which case you will find the cheapest possible market for the second because the second one is usually expensive so right now 
if you think about it, YouTube, Google, uh, count Shopee, Grab as some of their largest customers, right? But at some point, there's going to be enough intent created within the apps that they actually will not need these, these uh, platforms anymore, in which case they will devolve into using the cheapest possible intent-based marketing, non-intent-based marketing, which is affiliate marketing, right? Because you're fixing it on some kind of CPS as opposed to a CPC. But from what you're saying, we're still pretty far from this, at least for Asia. And I'd, I'd even say like Amazon starting out must have been completely different ecosystem. They went straight for those channels right away because there was nothing else actually. There was no platforms for them to acquire off. No, of. no, they had they had display marketing as well. Well, this, yeah, display. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, but I mean, like, in, that's what YouTube and, and Google are. They're, they're, so yeah, YouTube and yeah. Facebook are. They display ads just in a single platform as opposed to a distributed network. So even with macro headwinds, with everything opening up, this doesn't change much in your opinion. It's just still the same story that's going on. Yeah. Oh, quick question, question. How do you see the speed of things? Um, so, so, so I think a few Hong Kong based investors reached out to us, uh, uh, two weeks ago saying that they've seen a, a piece of damning research, I think done by, by, by one of the big three, uh, consulting companies, uh, who's projecting basically, um, I think 10 to 15% GMA growth for, uh, for e-commerce in Southeast Asia over the next five years. And, uh, and that 10 to 15% annual growth. Yeah, so that to them is uh, is shockingly really? low. Yeah, and can you share that with us? I find that so hard to. I I, I said the same. I, I said I mean I mean even in China it took so long for them to 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 to, to reach such low growth, and the southern stage is, is still at at the stage where I mean you can basically basically calculate the the, the penetration, right? It's it's not that high. Yeah. What's the what's what would be the underpinning uh, factor for that? Is it because wealth isn't distributed enough for it to keep up? Uh, that people cannot afford what the repurchases are, are stuck, not enough wealth. I mean, I don't know. What is it? What do you think? I think, I, I think it's basically, um, it was done by one of the firms. So, so, so I have not seen the research myself, but, um, but I can embed a few assumptions. I think one of the assumptions is obviously this, um, uh, this going back to, to new normal kind of thing, people are going offline. So, 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 so that's, that's the assumption, um, that they, they, they have built in. I think the other assumption is, um, is basically people's consumption power and, and the fact that, uh, that the, the, the metro policies are sufficiently penetrated and, uh, yeah. it takes much more effort to, to go to the second, third, fourth tier cities and rural areas. I, I find it hard to believe, to be honest. Well, I mean that, but that's the whole strategy of like Shopee and, and Zada, right? Just having low cost goods still will capture that market and grow, right? Even if the second tier cities. They still consume, no? I mean, I don't know. I mean, Andrew, maybe, yeah, you would know better still. Uh, they're mostly growing out of the second tier cities. Yeah. 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 So, like, if you think about the, the, the needs of customers, right? The assortment that Shopee and Lazada brings, uh, it's easier to find in urban cities. So urban population is more likely to buy out of a mall than a second tier city because they can't find the kind of brands that they can find on these platforms. This almost feels like the perfect segue straight to, to quick commerce. Do, should we jump to that? Sure. Let's do it. Right. Cause it's an extension of uh, e-commerce and well, depending, maybe it's a new category. We'll, we'll figure that out, but uh quick commerce. So for those who don't know, I mean, Jangan, you presuppose the question is quick commerce folding, but apparently we kind of already know that this kind of started for a few companies that are notable brand names. But for those who don't know, quick commerce is what 10 to 15 minute deliveries using dark stores or these convenience stores that are not really official, uh, then allows you to order fresh foods, uh, alcohol, drinks, beverages, food even, uh, and get it to your doorstep in 10 or 15 minutes. 
right? Uh, last year, 2021, depending on what source, I saw an FT article saying 14 billion was invested in this space, but I'm not sure if that's including groceries. I couldn't access the full article, but now the article said around 4 billion. So somewhere between 4 and 14 billion was invested last year. Um, notable names that we know, Fridge No More, Joker, Gorillas, Buke, Gatir, GoPuff, uh, Yandex, the Russian corporations, uh, Yango Deli. Um, right. And on, on the fringes, you know, we have the Uber Eats, Food Pandas, Delivery Heroes, which is like kind of indirect competitors. India has Swiggy and Blinkit. Southeast Asia now has Astro, Bananas, Dropsy, and Beep Beep. Uh, Food Panda Hong Kong recently did a partnership with Sasa Beauty Company for 15-minute delivery. Um, it seems to be quite early in Southeast Asia. These guys are starting to launch and enter. But in other markets, you know, uh, we're seeing some of these big names shut down, right? And we kind of seen this before in the rice share space where big valuations, big money, top line, price wars, market, marketplace execution and ops. Um, we kind of know how this ends up, you know, consolidation, acquisitions. But it feels to me, it feels like the cycle is happening faster, right? Early in March in 2022, Fridge No More is no more. Uh, they shut down. Buke filed Chapter 11 earlier in the month. Uh, Yango Deli, the Yandex group, to, you know, uh, these guys are, you know, Buke and Yango Deli, they're tied to Russian companies. So they're blaming the war. But yeah, I think we could probably discuss whether that's, you know, should you blame macro environment or is it just not a good business? Um, but they shut, uh, Yango Deli shut down in France to focus on other Western European countries. Zomato is acquiring Blinkit at a stock deal of seven to $800 million. Getir raised uh, $768 million at a $12 billion valuation. To give you some context, McKinsey put the total food delivery market at $150 billion. So that's a huge chunk, right? Uh, depending if you think that's additive or you think it's a new category or if you think it's taking away from food delivery. Gorillas last year raised $1 billion. Uh, GovPuff is going beyond the US. They've acquired companies in the UK as well. Um, I don't know. So it's, it's interesting. I think we have two different viewpoints here, right? I think... Uh, some people are skeptical this is actually driving value. Uh, Andrew earlier was claiming now he he's a hardcore believer, uses them every day. Um, so I don't know who, who wants to tee this off, uh, what you guys think of this 15-minute delivery. Uh, you know, we saw a lot of them are, some of the big names who raise a lot of money are shutting down. Is this going to continue all the way through? Will this put a stop to this guy starting in Southeast Asia or is there a real problem? Is it a new category? Who wants to go first? Andrew, you don't want to defend this. You were just saying you use it every day. It's great, no? No, I, I want to hear yeah, the negatives first. I want to hear the negatives first. That's, that's uh, he's using his debating techniques. That's right. Be careful what you say. This is something that we have discussed uh, for a while. And uh, this is a sector that, uh, that at first, you have the startups, which are raising lots of money. And the second, you also have the, the large delivery players, which are looking for a new sector of growth. Um, and, uh, and, and we all know that, uh, I mean, especially in the grocery part, I mean, this is the, this is the market which people have been trying repeatedly over the last, I mean, not repeatedly, but uh, sort of um, a few times over the last two, two decades to try to crack. And it's, it's now it remains that the, the last market to to be penetrated by e-commerce. And I don't think anybody's doing that effectively in a sustainable model yet. So so, so, so what I'm trying to understand is is what is missing, right? I mean, and uh, and of course, I, 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 see, I see the reason why people keep throwing money uh, once every few years into these companies because, uh, because the market is just big. But, um, but, but how exactly um, are we able to eventually crack this market and will this market be eventually cracked? Uh, I've discussed with friends who have been running the, 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 the flash part of um, 
part part of Meituan, and um, and 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 they said basically uh, there are two categories which are basically working for them. And the first is medicine, and the second is flowers. Um, Interesting. And, uh, these are these are generating enough frequency and the and sort of enough uh, GMP. But this is based on the fact that they already have um, have a fleet of uh, of delivery riders, which 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 are making small profit on food delivery itself. So 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 that they, they, they don't maintain a um, a, uh, a, a fulfillment, um, a, a basically fulfillment infrastructure just for, 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 for the quick commerce part per se. Um, but, but, but even that with, with, with the grocers part of me, it's still quite tough for them to figure out, I mean, how to do it, um, in the, um, sort of a sustainable and profitable way. So, so, so I, I, I'm curious, I mean, how this can be, can be cracked? I don't have answer for that. I, I think lots of people have been debating on that. So what's your guys' sense? Well, I think you brought up a really interesting point is I think you do need to delineate between companies that have their own proprietary infrastructure, i.e. the run like these ghost um, stores or ghost kitchen versus the players that are more like platform players, right? Where they have like a technology layer and then they have maybe like their own logistics suite, but then ultimately they're working as these like marketplaces or aggregators for third-party businesses, right? And I, I think we need to... You know, my, so my assertion for this particular business is I've always believed that the people that try to do it as a standalone, so sort of like the 15 minute grocery delivery segment, those are the ones that are fundamentally going to be the weakest, um, at this, right. And I just look at it from basically like, it's just, I come, I come from it from like a unit economics level, right? So like we, we look at. You know, I, I compare this to say, like, say, I think, I think actually what you brought up, like Meituan uh, with flowers and medicine is actually a good example, right? So I think why those two categories work, and I know some players in this part of the world that do flower delivery and their margins and growth are quite good, is because typically uh, flowers are a relatively speaking high basket good, right? So if you go and you buy flowers for your girlfriend or your, your mom or your boyfriend or whatever it is, right? You're probably spending somewhere in the vicinity of like, I don't know. 100 to 200 ringgit. So that's like what, 20, 20 to 50 US dollars. And so at those margin levels, I think, um, you can support, you know, the infrastructure costs needed. But if you're talking about like people who are there with the value proposition is I'm going to sell you like a banana and deliver a banana to you in 15 minutes, or I'm going to sell you like a banana and a set of batteries, you know, the numbers on that just don't work out. Like a banana is like what, I don't know, five ringgit, 10 ringgit. So there's no way that you could potentially ever like make the economics work on those sorts of businesses. Yeah. I mean, there, well, there's a, there's a few things about that. I, I think you, you kind of astutely point out margin and economics need to be healthy. So what I was researching is that a lot of the bigger players like GoPuff or some of these other guys, they are, their, their strategy is to go for vertical integration. So a lot of them are buying up dark kitchens, a lot of them. So essentially they're heading into direct competition with the other platform players that are already established like Ubers and the grabs, right? So it's, it seems that if you more, if you keep going more vertical, essentially you end up becoming one of these kind of players, I guess. So it, then, you know, the question is like, what else does it re really differentiate? And is, is this just a marketing ploy, uh, where, you know, these platform players, we're going to get to 10, 15 minute deliveries anyway, or. You know, do they actually deliver in 10 to 15 minutes? I guess, Andrew, you could tell us since you've been using it. Um, and I, I do think that there will be a few categories that make sense, um, you know, from a margin perspective, they can capture it. But at the same time, you know, we saw other models like Lala Move that just seemed to work as a, uh, just a delivery player and just the delivery fee alone was good enough. And you just go for volume, 
right? So there's, and the cost is just all into the consumer. So there are various models of this that exist and kind of work. It's just, to me, it's just a question that this, does the value really make sense? Because you have to say it's a new category completely where 10, 15 minutes is like a 10x product game changer where I, my whole behavior shifts and does that now, which I am somewhat skeptical about that. Other than that, you know, it may be possibly a future that stays, but you know, maybe it's not worth 12, you know, 12 or 15, 20 billion dollars in current stage, unless that behavior shift changes. I, I don't know. So Andrew, what, what, what do you say? It's very difficult to unpack this, right? So I think, you know, this is to draw a parallel. It's like these conversations I have with people about crypto and everyone's so negative about it because they're not yeah. able to see like the potential this thing can go. I'm not, I'm not trying to say like, it's I, feel like I'm, I feel like we always have these conversations and I'm the only optimist. <laughs> and like, um, I, I get why you guys are pessimistic. There's a lot of things that don't work, but, but let's cut through. The reason why these companies were able to grow their high is because there was an opportunity that arose during COVID. Or first of all, can you guys hear me well? Yeah. Yes. The closer, the better. Perfect. So there's an opportunity that arose during COVID, which is um, properties became cheaper. There were a lot of distressed assets on market that could have become uh, a great way to rent warehouses for cheap, micro warehouses, basically. Right? Number one. Number two, labor became very cheap. A lot of people were laid off from their jobs and, and the idea of like doing deliveries and working in these kinds of businesses started to grow, right? So suddenly two cost items, which is warehousing and labor for deliveries and managing these warehouses became very cheap. On the flip side, a lot of people were working from home. So the demand for the, these kinds of services, groceries and food being delivered to homes increased, right? So you had an opportunity where the top for these operate high operationally heavily businesses dropped dramatically. And on the flip side, the um, demand increased dramatically. So the pandemic created an opportunity for the businesses to exist when they didn't do before. The unit economics never made sense, right? We tried doing something similar in Jakarta before and it was a nightmare, right? Now you compound that to the fact that where these, these businesses are happening are in, uh, are in places where the delivery economics really, really work well, right? So there's high urban density, you know, you can do multiple stops. Uh, there's uh, ways of optimizing how fast the deliveries can happen so that you can actually do like route dynamics and all these other kinds of measurements that allow your, your deliveries to be super fast. The hub and spoke model can work a bit better if you, if you can share assets with other distressed players who may not be willing to give up their whole uh, space, but have a little bit of space in the back, for example, right? So... So, so the dynamics worked from 2020 to 2022. The big question is, will it continue to work? In, and, and I truly believe the dynamics work, right? It's not just like it was a, like, like if you look at the union economics of these players in the last two years, they, they're incredible, which is why they raised the valuations. They were able to, VCs are not stupid. I right? know people, people aren't throwing money at them because like the math isn't right. The math is incredible, right? The fact that they're able to do this. Also think about this, right? They are, they're doing it for top 3,000 SKUs. They're picking the SKUs that really will push, that are highly liquid. They're constantly optimizing the SKUs that they're running. They're going to drop SKUs and have very little inventory risk. Uh, over time, they start to figure out demand generation and they figure out how to place products in the right place at the right time so that you have the right kinds of products. They have hub and spoke so you can push from a mega cheap warehouse outside of the city into the right spokes so that, you know, when you run out of this particular product, there's balancing between them. Right. So it's not as simple as just saying rent 
that well. There's, there's a lot of optimization. There's a lot of like inventory optimization. So there's a reduction in inventory risk, right? And then because of the way they run that business, your working capital needs are a bit less than you, if you were a convenience store, for example, right? Because you're using your square footage a lot more, um, a lot more efficiently. They're like vending. They're like vending markets on steroids. That's how you need to think about them, right? They're vending. They're vending machines, except they have three thousand SKUs. And the optimization between the warehouse and the vending machine is very, very smart. And that's first mile added on top of that, right? And vending machines can work in cities where people are willing to pay high price points for them, right? So now then the question is, is demand going to sustain itself over time? Um, here's the funny thing, right? Every food app in London and in New York is also trying to do deliveries. In LATAM, Rappi is moving so fast in Rappi Turbo, which is the shifting business, right? Um, so every food delivery app is also moving businesses because they see where it's uh, working and how profitable it is and how they can actually uh, have it as on the back end of their uh, food business, right? Number one. Number two is um, I've been using these grocery services because like, if you think about it, um, sure, you can walk over to waiters and, and buy your, your groceries or the guy can deliver it for like a pound and like the assortment is pretty much the same. So you're like, why do I really need to walk out? I'm busy. I need to get some shit done. I have a bunch of calls back to back uh, using them. In honesty, the reason why I've used app a lot is because of the alcohol, right? And this is a very important point. I don't know if you guys know this, but convenience stores in Southeast Asia, almost 40% in some markets, 50% of their revenues comes from cigarettes, right? I wouldn't be surprised. True. I wouldn't be surprised because... My use case, I've used Zap. Zap is, uh, is the one that I, my 515-minute delivery of choice app. And I've used Zap um, three times in this last week, last 10 days. Each time was alcohol. Each time was wine. Yeah. So I, I was basically at someone's house. We were drinking and then they were like, oh, guys, we ran out of wine. And I'm like, don't worry, guys, I got this, right? And you pay, you know, cheapest prices in market for like really decent wine. Uh, or champagne or whatever, beers, and it gets right. So in markets where the demand for this kind of like late night, last minute alcohol is, I wouldn't be surprised if like 40, 50% of the income just comes from alcohol, right? And they start to circumvent bars. They're eating market share from bars. They're eating market share from, um, you know, drink delivery apps, which didn't exist in the past. So they took three days to deliver. So my theory is like a lot of these businesses are maybe 50% alcohol delivery. 50% grocery delivery and alcohol delivery massively subsidizes a lot of the other parts of the business. Um, because, you know, when you're drunk at 2 a.m., do you really care? Because you don't have a choice. Yeah. So, okay. so, 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 so that's strong. Um, uh, I've, I've not looked at the data myself, but, uh, but I've heard from multiple people that, uh, I mean, the medicine delivery uh, companies in China, like JD Health or whatever, um, more than half of what they deliver is, uh, is basically family planning. Um, items oh really yeah well that makes sense <laughs> family planning you can ask Sergi. you can ask Sergi in thailand how much yeah. yeah well i mean like i i i that's not, i'm not like saying i'm completely uh pessimistic on the whole model i, I do like a certain categories will make sense and to me it's just a question will those categories be enough to size and you know justify the valuation and if not how do you get bigger they start going more vertical when you start directly competing right then then just this whole cycle that we kind of just discussed so, I mean, I, I do think there's a certain innovation. The arbitrage element that you talk about makes a lot of sense to me. 
It's just, you know, I, it depends. It's going to find its feet in a few cities for a few niche cases that make sense. But like, you know, by and large for, uh, I don't know, how convenient New York is already. Like every corner has a bodega or convenience store already. And the, people like to walk in New York. My sister says no one's using them, even though she sees them everywhere. Of course, that's a bubble, you know. Uh, but I think, yeah, other cities, maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll work in San Francisco. Maybe tech bros don't want to do, interact with people. Who knows? Right. And London, your case maybe makes sense for certain pockets. Right. So there, it is solving a problem use case. It's just a question of, you know, stickiness and size. Right. So, and um, your, your anecdote spot on too. My friend even in Bangkok was just, even if they do just alcohol delivery on level business. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's going to be a business that doesn't die, but does it justify like 12 billion out of $150 billion market? That's my question. Right. So, I don't. Uh, Alcohol delivery on its own inventory, or you work with third parties to build a billion dollar business. So to build a billion dollar business, do you do yeah. alcohol delivery based on your inventory with, um, with micro warehouses or you work with uh, third parties? I would say own inventory because that's where you yeah. earn most of the budget. I, no? I think you probably start by trying to figure out what categories work for your market, right? So you do like third, like third parties to, to launch, eventually yeah. you start to build your own directly to the, the source where you got better margins overall, right? Correct. I think, I think for alcohol, unless you get it to wine, otherwise if you deal with beer and, uh, and hot liquor, it's very limited SKUs that you need to prepare. Well, also, well, also that's what I was wondering. So like for Vietnam, Philippines, uh, uh, I don't know, but does, does that work as well for Indonesia, Malaysia for alcohol? I mean, cigarettes, sure. I mean, everyone smokes, right? Yeah, but you can't do cigarettes in, oh, we tried doing like alcohol deliveries in Malaysia. It's really, really difficult because. Big sis, the small low. No, but not just that, right? Like there's a lot of verifications. You need to verify that oh, okay. you're living yeah. under 18. Uh, sorry, yeah. sorry. Above 18. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> what were you selling to, Andrew? <laughs> don't, don't run on me. But okay, so first you have to verify they're above 18. And the second you have to verify that they're not Muslim, which is a requirement in Malaysia, right? And that's really difficult because like, if you got it wrong, the PR disaster is massive. Yeah. Yeah. So which means it makes sense for a, 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 a company, a payment company, which has done KYC on its customers to, to deal with that instead of, a, yeah, but that's I mean, not just the front customer. It's about one person ordering and someone else picking it up. Right. Yeah. Your dad's account. That's where the PR disaster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's a big question mark still. I'm not completely dismissing it, but I, I do think a lot of categories are just frou-frou uh so time, so so quick, quick question on this when 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 do you think that fresh groceries will be cracked by e-commerce anywhere in this world fresh like groceries you mean fre by fresh you mean like fresh produce right yeah fresh produce are you talking about quick or you're talking about general grocery delivery i think general even I mean, like, I think it's a permanent category for a certain percentage in the U.S. already. Now, I don't know mm -hmm. if the valuations are there either, but I, I think it's to stay for a certain percentage for that kind of market. Um, I don't know anywhere else, though. I mean, Andrew would know. He's actually he's an actual customer, so he would know better from his experience. But for me, I'm not a customer. What's what's the question? Where do you think in the world will have cracked fresh like grocery delivery? and have it as a solid business model that's success, quote unquote, successful, whatever that means. Dude, I, I think, like this is a question of time, right? I, I was recently reading a report that says like the current generation of people who are in cool high schools, 
believe that their identities are more valid online than they are offline. Right. Mm. Right. So we're working, yeah. we're working in a world where people are going to spend more of their times online. They don't see the need of being present in this physical grocery yeah. store. Like think about Malaysia, right? Like it's not like a walkable city. You don't exactly walk to your Tesco. You actually have to drive out there. It's a pain in yeah. the ass. You have to park, which is a pain in the ass. Then you have to get your shit get in the car, come back. That's like 40 minutes to yeah. groceries. It's not like, you know, this, in fact, like these markets is where like convenience is a much stronger uh, argument than in some of these developed economies, right? So I do think like you take a digital world where people are much more used to using apps. And then you compound that with how painful the offline experience is. You can have that transition even in production uh, not, yeah. not the gauge. Yeah, I buy your thesis if they could remove a lot of the annoying frictions, like out of stock, low quality produce that you didn't want to pick. Like if they could solve those, I complete, it makes a lot of sense to me actually, because my biggest hangups about these is just that it's not that much more different than me walking and like driving out and buying it myself. But like, if it's like that exponentially better, you know, come, maybe we are just the old men grumbling here, right? It could, it could be the preferred method going forward. Like for you, you usually, cause you get the value out of it. Right. So maybe what about the, what about China, Jangan? Like I'm sure it has to have quote unquote cracked in China. No, or is it not a big category? Is it loss making in China or? Yes. I don't know. I've seen, uh, I personally have seen probably 20 bags of, uh, of different business models. Uh, I mean, depending on how close the inventory is to, to the final customer. Um, so yeah, but no, no, nobody's able to, 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 um, to sustain that business model, um, in a profitable way. So I, I, I guess there are, there are a few factors to that. I mean, first is the competitive landscape in China. I mean, whatever you do, it's just, just terribly competitive if, if, even now. So, so many of these business models that they're, they're competing against players in adjacent industries who are trying to basically fulfill the, the same demand from customers. And even in the, in the same industry, you would, you would have multiple players. So, so, so that, 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 that pressure, uh, makes it very hard for, 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 for players to, to, to make money. Um, I do think in terms of efficiency, if you look at some of the players in China, they have, they have done a lot of, uh, operational refinement to make sure that, okay, each, each part of the, the operations is, um, as frictionless as possible, but in the real world, there's still lots of friction and uh, there's still lots of, um, lots of, lots of efficiency that they could theoretically arrive, but just not there yet. And of course it's compounded with this on and off lockdowns in China. So, so which makes it really hard for anyone to actually to, to basically do things, uh, um, in a sustainable way. So. So I don't know. I, I, I don't think anybody has, um, has, uh, has cracked that in a sustainable, profitable way. Um, but also the question, the question I've, I've been asking myself and be discussing with a few people is that if you remove all this competition and leaving just, I don't know, three or four players, just trying a different model, um, maybe things would have worked out. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe that's where Amazon is heading or maybe Instacart goes and builds out their direct to the farm to, 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 to the, you know, the end customers. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of old world problems with traditional grocery that tech kind of needs to solve first. And then that's why working with them doesn't really work as well. Yeah. Dave, do you want to say something? Why don't you close out Dave? No, I mean, I, I just, okay. It's a lot of points here, right? I think the, okay. So my thought about this is really, it's a question of like, yeah, how big is this market? And I, I sort of think about this from the historical lens of tech, right? And I think, you know, over the last 
15 to 20 years, we've had different sectors where we have like a old world component, like a, an atoms component. And we try and pair that with a tech solution, right? Yeah. So some examples, if we go through history is let's say like uh, Groupon. Groupon is an example. There's like deals, right? You're, you're connecting local businesses through, um, through the internet to, to customers. Um, yeah. or ride sharing, ride sharing is an even better example, right? You're solving like what's traditionally been a physical, uh, physically constrained problem through technology. Um, obviously, um, uh, instant groceries is an example of this, right? And I, I think if you just like look at the history of tech, um, each time when people try to, um, uh, address these issues with a technological innovation, you end up raising or creating these financial, uh, incentives and, and, and structures where they're treated as if they were purely a tech company as in a software company. And for whatever reason, people kind of ignore the fact that these businesses are always going to be on some level fundamentally constrained by the physical world. Um, and I don't. And this is where I think for me, the real frustration, not, not frustration, but the question mark comes in, right? It's like, because it's, it's like I said, it's like every time one of these businesses come, I mean, it's in different forms and different, different fashions and different sectors, but ultimately it's always the same question, right? Or it's always the same constraint, right? You have something that will never be infinitely scalable because you always have, need to have this component that's based in the real world. But for whatever reason, people always forget, right? I think it's just like a human thing. People forget you know, recency bias, or we're not, we're not, you know, evolutionarily wired to remember more than a couple of years in the past and project out a couple of years in the future. And so, you know, I, I, you know, I think we're going to be in this cycle for a long time. I'm sure in like another 15 years or 10 years, we're going to be having the exact same conversation about something that's tangentially dissimilar or someone else will try groceries again. And I think until you can fundamentally remove that, like several layers of the physical world from it. We'll never get out of this question, right? I mean, it's basically the question of like, can like Uber ever live up to its like hundred billion dollar valuation, whatever it was at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, maybe when they invent driverless cars and can remove the entire human component of it. And I think maybe this is the same. Like, yes, mm -hmm. and we get to a point where one day one of yeah. these quick order companies can actually be worth fourteen billion or whatever their actual valuations are. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe when you get to a point where you know you have a robot, you robot. know, picking inventory and yeah. deliver it to your house, and then. At that point, yeah, the, your, your numbers are sort of something makes sense. But until that happens, I don't, you know, I think we're going to be, you know, we'll repeat the cycle again in like 10 years, probably or less. Interesting. I agree with you. All right. Shall we move on to the Ronin hack? Oh yeah. I got a whole thing for this. I'm ready. So Ronin hack, uh, Ronin networks, which is the network that powers Axie infinity as an exchange for the crypto coins gained by playing Axie. Uh, it was hacked, right? For March 23rd, it was basically, I don't know, over $500 million USD in value of crypto was stolen. It was a heist, right? Uh, it was only discovered a week later on March 29th. Um, and how exactly did this happen? Uh, you probably need to know a little bit about basics of, of blockchain technology. Should, should I bother to go through this quickly? I can do right. Uh, can you share the presentation that I made? Because this basically talks about it. Okay, let me let me let me quickly talk about the the blocks, and then okay. I'll show your presentation. 
So basically, you know, if, if for the audience who's not as familiar with blockchains, right? Blockchain technology uh, basically consists, you know, each it's essentially just information in the form of a block, and it connects to another block in a in the form of a chain, right? And these blocks are stored on nodes, and there are basic there should be multiple nodes, which is like basically a, a small server you could think of it. And each of these nodes has a whole copy of all the chains of data of all the transactions that are connected, and they all need to reference each other for it to be valid. Uh, so, and basically what happened with Axie Infinity is that, the, you know, their blockchain, which is, you know, the theory with blockchain technology is that it's supposed to be sufficiently decentralized across, I don't know what, millions of nodes, right? But what happened was that they only had nine nodes and uh, five out of the nine nodes were only needed to be authenticated in order for a transaction to pass, right? So what happened is the hacker was able to hack four private encryption keys or security keys to approve a transaction on the Ronin network. And then he was able to hack the final one, which is a little bit harder on the Axie Infinity DAO, which decentralized autonomous organization. So basically that's just a group or community of, of developers who manage the Axie Infinity game. They have their own constitution, right? No one person really controls it. Uh, and that was the last one that was the, you know, the last key that was stolen from them was needed. And the reason why they were able to do that was because back in December, back in November, there was a huge surge in new users on the Axie Infinity game and Ronin network was asking the DAO to give whitelist capabilities to approve certain transactions without any checks and balances. And so basically the DAO agreed and what happened was they never turned it off when things settled down back in December and they were able to exploit this uh, white, you know, whitelist, you know, approval of any transaction to get the final key and thus the fifth key was stolen and they were able to transfer out Roughly, was it like 175,000 ETH and something like 25, sorry, and 25,000 uh, stablecoin USDC, uh, which was now the value has risen, risen up to about 600 million USD that was stolen. Um, so, Dave, I, I guess I can share your your presentation if you want to take over. Yes, please, please do. I'm back. Okay. Okay. So I uh, I'm going to apologize again to the pure audio listeners. I know. I know I did this a couple months back, and so, so actually, I went I went really deep on this topic, in terms of like, you know, centralization or actually the lack of centralization in DeFi, right? So for everyone that's listening, DeFi, as as we all know, stands for decentralized finance. But then the question really is like, how centralized and or decentralized is this? And I think you know. Um, a lot of this is based off work that Balaji did. So for those who don't know, Balaji was the former CTO of Coinbase and he was a partner at, uh, was it Andreessen, uh, where he was the, the crypto partner? Um, so I cribbed a lot of this information from him or all of it from him, but I think just, it's interesting to walk us through this, um, as a basis of this conversation. So I'm, we're going to get into some graphs and charts. I'm going to have to talk about some economic concepts here. So, uh, apologies beforehand that's not your thing so to really like get into like centralization and decentralization i think like a useful proxy um you could use for this in from economics is uh the lorenz curve and guinea coefficients right so as people know lorenz curves and guinea coefficients um they're essentially both uh you know uh ways that we can measure uh equality or income equality that's what they're typically um, use for. But if you take that framework and you apply it to a centralization versus decentralization framework, what you could essentially say, or you can say, infer, is that like in a perfectly decentralized uh, environment, 
then your Gini coefficient would be zero because everyone owns everything fully decentralized, right? The converse of that is in a perfectly centralized environment, your Gini coefficient would be one because one person controls everything, right? So what I have here is, and the reason we're going through this is because we need to establish some foundations first. So this is the Lorenz curve for those of you who are uninitiated. So Lorenz curve, um, for those of you who are just listening, on the x-axis, you have the percentage of households by income distribution. On the y-axis, you have the cumulative share of income percentage, right? And then if you have perfect equality, it will be a 45 degree line going through. So it's a one-to-one -one ratio, right? Of course, that's impossible. So when you graph out the actual distribution of income along the curve, that's where you get the, so the theoretical Lorenz curve, right? So everyone follow this so far? And then the Gini coefficient is basically the area between perfect quality and the Lorenz curve, which is A, divided by A plus B, which is the total area below, right? So let's move on to some, you know, more concrete examples. So uh, next slide, please, Alex. I forgot you're doing this. So let's look at the essential, like, as a proxy. If you, so as again, using Gini coefficient as a proxy for centralization versus decentralization in the context of cryptocurrency, let's say, look at how centralized cryptocurrency actually is, right? So what we have here is we have the cumulative percentage of cryptocurrency. So these are the actual individual um, coins or currencies and then the market cap of them, right? So as you can see, Basically, the top two, um, so the crypto in general is very, very top heavy. So the Gini coefficient is 0.91 when we look at coins to market cap, which basically means it's perfectly centralized almost from a coin to market cap perspective. So if you control basically the top two cryptocurrencies, you control like 60, 70% of the total market cap of all crypto, right? So everyone follow along this analogy so far? Yes. Okay. So let's move on. Next slide, please. <laughs> so then we basically, you can look, you can apply this to the various subsystems within a public blockchain. So uh, according to Bology, a public blockchain is usually composed of six subcomponents or subsystems, right? There's, so there's mining, uh, which, and then mining self-explanatory, uh, the client, which is your code base, the developers. So the number of people that committed to each code base the exchanges on which they're traded, uh, the nodes, which is by country, and then the ownership, which is by IP addresses. And so you can obviously um, take away or add subsystems to this, depending on like the framework that you want to use. So let's just, for the purpose of this, we'll keep this framework. So next slide, please. So what you see here is you see basically each of these sub six subsystems mapped out using uh, the Lorenz curve and the Gini coefficient. So you can get a sense for how centralized and or decentralized each of these subsystems are, right? So if you look at Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin mining is actually pretty, pretty decentralized, right? If you look at that curve, it's a pretty non-aggressive uh, upward trend, right? So the Gini coefficient on mining uh, for Bitcoin is 0.4, right? Now, if you want to look at a inverse example, like what is the most centralized part of the Bitcoin um, subsystem, it's going to be the code base because most people just use Bitcoin. So it's basically one, right? We're close to one. Or if you want to look at, say, the node uh, decentralization factor or the Bitcoin ownership, we're talking like a 0.85 or 0.84, right? And then go to the next slide, Alex. 
So we did the same, the, the, sorry, one, one slide back, one slide back. So the same exercise was done for ETH. So again, looking at each of the six subsystems and looking at basically which ones of these are the most centralized versus which one of these are the most decentralized. So uh, for ETH, mining is the most decentralized, whereas for, uh, I think, node is the most centralized, or sorry, the client is. So then go to the next slide, Alex. Right? So basically what's the saying, right, is for a any given public cryptocurrency, you're only as decentralized or centralized as your most decentralized or centralized subsystem, right? Because if one entity or party controls any one of those subsystems, they essentially control the entire currency, right? So basically what you do is when you map this all out and you do the math, right? You look at the maximum to basically get a sense of what is the decentralization centralization of each of these chains. So basically, and to be fair, this was 2017 data. So this has obviously changed a lot in the five years in between. But basically, if you're looking at this, right? The maximum Gini coefficients of both ETH and Bitcoin are pretty pretty similar. They're 0.915 and 0.92. Of course, a lot of that is because they're all using the same code base. So if we exclude the code base part of it, it's still pretty high, right? We're looking at 0.85 to 0.8, which means these are actually pretty centralized uh, currencies. Okay. And let's go to the next slide, Alex. And so now we're getting sort of like a way to like quantify. And then what is more commonly used these days is something known as the Nakamoto coefficient. So the Nakamoto coefficient basically says how many parties would you need to control to control 51% of that particular subsystem, right? So basically what it's saying, uh, go to the next slide, Alex. Like, so for each of these subsystems, how many of the players or actors would you need to coerce into a room for you to have complete control of that cryptocurrency, right? So basically, um, again, using Bitcoin as our basic line example, if you get the people or the party or the entity that controls the code base into the room and coerce into whatever you want, you can control Bitcoin, right? Uh, on the flip side of that, if you're trying to do, look at it from an ownership perspective, you would need to amalgamate 456 um, people into the same room to control Bitcoin via the ownership subsystem. Um, and then I think for this, just slip to, skip to the last slide 10. I'll let you can skip each for now. One more. So basically, uh, one back, one back. Go one back. Yeah. So, so this is the same as the previous slide, except now it's just written out in more clearly, clearly seen language. Like basically, you know, if you were to try and capture or attack or control one of these uh, cryptocurrencies, like where, you know, in terms of like number of nodes for you to capture or which subsystem for you to look at, which ones are the easiest ones, right? So as you can see, if you wanted to basically control Ethereum on the ownership subsystem, you need to control 72 entities that um, control this. Whereas for Bitcoin, that'd be 456. Uh, where if you're looking at exchanges, like how many of the exchanges we need to control, uh, to control one of these, you need to control five for each of these, right? So last slide then, please, Alex. So basically, you know, the question that I was asking is like, okay, so how centralized? So again, the previous slide were, were 2017 numbers. These are the most up-to-date ones I could find for 2021. So these are the Nakamoto coefficients for a lot of the major currencies right now, updated in 2021. So basically, as you can see, Bitcoin actually does has increased substantially. So you now need to control 7,341. That's its Nakamoto coefficient, which I assume is the proxy for, I don't remember exactly which substance it's tied to, uh, but I assume it's like 
validators. Probably related to his validators, right? Which is yeah, validators, right? Whereas like for a lot of these other ones, they're actually not that they're not that decentralized, right? If for like Polygon, you need a you need to control two <laughs> validators to basically control the entire chain. So you know, I think it's just an interesting framework to look at, you know, DeFi, right? And then look at like, you know, oh, which ones really. actually actually live up to the promise of being decentralized yeah. and which ones don't. And honestly, if we're looking at, at these and people can run this analysis on their own and the data is all on the chain, right? But like basically most of them are not that decentralized. And like this hack yeah. that happened with Ronin, um, it's not that out of the you know, it's not it's not that far of a stretch. Like if you look at like say Solana, Solana to control Solana, you only need to control 19 of the 1,249 validators. So, yeah. you know, for people who want to target which cryptocurrencies to hack, look at. And I mean, the, the reason all of this is centralized was because they needed more efficiency. So they gave up centralization, right? So, and then the, the, the quote I got, which is crazier from, from, the, Ronin, from the Ronin guys was that um, the reason the reason why the threshold was so low, according to Sky Mavis, was that some nodes didn't catch up and the chains were stuck in sinking state. So therefore they just reduced the number of nodes uh, needed so they could process faster, right? Which basically from a security perspective and whole point of DeFi allowed it the weakness for it to be hacked, I guess. And that's probably exactly what happened. Um, and it doesn't seem that like they're likely to get this money back unless they're able to identify who this is and dox them. So to put social pressure, because if not, you know, there's actually, there's no need to give back the money. And if they don't care about money, it's even worse because then they're not looking for that payout. But, you know, apparently the hacker was trying to send money out to different exchanges uh, where there's KYC needed. So people were saying that's stupid. But I think the more interesting that I found out is that in most of these cases, like this, these hacks are quite common. Like the, the largest five, this is like not the largest even. There's been five more from, you know, 2014, 2018 to 2021 and 2022, where, you know, they're ranging from, you know, uh, the lowest is through to 25 million up to 600 million from the poly network, right? So, uh, but the most interesting thing is that what happens is that these guys end up, they're, they're, they can't liquidate the money because they freeze the bridges. They can't actually go to an exchange to to get it out. But if if they don't get the money back, basically the whole blockchain's dead completely dead. So Axie Infinity can't be dead if they can get back the money. So if they turn on the bridge now, the whole thing's just going to tank. So what happens is usually they'll give up 5 to 10% of the stolen money as a bounty, and they work backwards as a PR story to pretend that it was a whitelisting hack. And so uh, I don't know how this is going to pan out, but I found it really funny that ironically, you know, money gets returned because the hacker can't actually have the money, but they, they keep some of it. And then, you know, it's just a very painful wall. So I don't know. What was what uh, Andrew or, or John Gann, what was what was your take on this? Hey guys, I actually think Dave's take was so good on this that we're not going to get a great response. But I, I got I got headlines out of this. Like, we're going to dive into Lorette's curves. I mean, don't get don't get an input on me, no. <laughs> like, come on, bro. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. No more, no more economics talk next night. Well, well I, I mean, to me, look, to me, it's not that. Look, a lot of people are going to say that this proves that it's not a good actor castle, it's not secure, but it's not true. It's just that these guys need to I mean, push it, for more actual nodes. Ultimately, the reason why you have to go in because you want to prevent a 51% attack, right? That's the reason why you do any sort of validation or any sort of like uh, crypto. Well, the original idea, yes. The original idea. And now basically what, what this analysis is telling us is that a lot of them, you just don't like to get a 51%. 
you actually need very few validators. Right? What you and there's still need fewer percent, but it's just like fifty percent of two people, right? Or two two nodes yeah, or right. whatever. No, it exactly. makes sense. I mean, we knew when Solana launched, it was like a bunch of people that were controlling everything, and I, I do agree, right? The question is like, which L1 chains are the safest? And Bitcoin, and this is why like people like Jack Dorsey are throwing their strength behind Bitcoin, right? Because it's not just about yeah, correct it's decentralization. It's which app has the most amount of decentralization. A lot of people think it's Bitcoin. Um, so I, I agree. This analysis makes sense and makes sense why the Ronin Act happened. It also makes sense that a lot of these chains aren't decentralized at all. The question is like, and the deeper question here is like, this is the L1 level. There's a lot of startups that are trying to build like L0 multi-chain protocols, right? Will those multi-chain protocols... Can, can you explain multi-chain versus cross-chain? Uh, basically the same thing. So you could build a D app that allows yourself to work with multiple chains. Different types of blockchains. Correct. At the yeah. same time. Uh, so so cross-chain, but simultaneous. Um, okay. And so in theory, um, this actually validates having these multi-chains. <laughs> it's almost saying work with just a single protocol at a time and pick the protocol that is the safest, right? Well, it, it's this, this hack is, it's not because, I mean, look, yeah, in theory, it could have been more secure with more nodes, but honestly, with just better governance, this wouldn't have happened. So for example, the question is like, why in the hell is there so little nodes? So that's a governance side from the Sky Mavis side. The second part is why did a DAO, and the DAO is just it's a group of developers. So who is in control of the developers to decide, oh, by the way, I'm responsible now to turn off this whitelisting thing, right? So there's a governance problem on a DAO side in the constitution and a, a, a governance side on the actual developer sides of you know Sky Mavis, which made Axie, made Ronin, made everything, right? So it's, to me, it's just, again, it's just human error. It's not really the technology's wrong. It's just that, uh, I, mean, I don't know, hopefully this is now a signal to other blockchains or other you know, DAOs to probably shape up their governance. Yeah. And it probably gives a boost to the guys who are already more centralized like Bitcoin. And I guess my last slide is, yeah. I mean, this is like, yes, I'm more just saying centralized, but, but the thing is like, to me, it's like, this is like the fifth or sixth time of this scale of hundreds of millions of dollars are stolen and it still hasn't been addressed, right? So it's just kind of weird that, you know, for, for an unregulated market for this much scale and money, you hear people have actually lost their life savings in, in this kind of heist, this latest heist, you know? So, uh, you know, I don't know if this means more regulatory scrutiny or even how that's possible, but you know, it just, you know, governance needs to ship up and I'm surprised it's just, it's not being addressed sooner. So yeah, that's my final take. I mean, but I think that's, that's the, for me, that's, that's the take of this, right? Is this really just needs to be regulated like any other security, right? Like I just, the yeah, so much money. Whole idea that, that a utility token is not a security. I've never bought that argument. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you guys a story. I was telling this to Alex over lunch today. So I have an actor friend uh he's an actor right and he's been out of work uh the last couple of years because there's not been a lot of productions in malaysia so i was having dinner with him the other week and i was like oh you know what have you been doing for for money in the last like year and a half because there's not a lot of tv productions and he, he told me this crazy story maybe that's not that crazy basically these chinese like cryptocurrency companies will hire him to go to these conferences in china he's a white guy and basically he goes and pretends to be their CEO and speaks at these events because apparently being white still has some, you know, obvious and like credibility uh, bonus points in China. So he does like an hour of work a month. He does like one talk. He's surrounded by bodyguards who are just like his translators slash people that actually work at the company. So if he gets like approached for a question after the fact, like all these like actual crypto people that know what they're talking about will answer the question. They look at me. Like it's just, it's just, it's just like there's so much like 
shenanigans going on, which is, I think, a shame because I do believe that there is like some utility in the technology, but I think it's just this needs to be cleaned up a bit. Hey guys, by the way, I, I need another meeting. But... Okay. All right, we'll we'll let you up on and we'll get Jangan's final piece. Yeah. What's what's Jangan's final, final piece? You're gonna you're not gonna comment, no? No, I mean, uh, so 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 the question is that 600 million lost is that significant enough for um, for, for for some authorities to 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 step in, or or or, or is it just something that um, that's a natural evolution of a new technology that uh, that that's born by certain participants? And uh, I, I, I'm sure that sends a warning to to the others to to step up their security. I have a friend who lost uh, his biggest single loss was 70 million USD um, worth of crypto at one heist. And um, and he said, I mean, he has been attacked repeatedly every day, and um, it just forces him to, forces his um, his system to be more and more secure, and forces him to evolve his um. um the, the whole setup and uh, I asked him, I mean, do you work with any third parties? And he said, no, because third parties, um, that are available there are not just fast, are not fast enough to, to adapt to mm. his, his, his needs. So, yeah. so the question is that, uh, I mean, how do we see a, a industry for crypto security evolve out of this or, or, or we'll see that, okay, the major players will each try to crack the security, the security piece in their own way. And it's a race against the bad, bad guys, right? I mean, of course, I don't know who, who are the bad guys, but. Well, the more institutionalized this gets and the more the average Joe loses their life savings, which we've seen in every financial cycle dating back centuries, uh, sooner or later regulation will come depending on how bad it gets and how widespread it gets systemically, right? So, I mean, it's not mm -hmm. 600 million. I'm looking at the only, I'm looking at the top five and it's already two or three billion, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you keep pushing this way, eventually it's, you'll come to head eventually. But right now, if it's, yeah, if it's the enthusiasts are only losing it or wait, you wait for the, the next big hedge fund guy to lose it, there's going to be some waves probably, right? So it just depends who loses and how much. So yeah, um, I, yeah, your, your poor friend 17 is not enough, I guess, but yeah. I don't, I don't, and also the question is that lots of these things run cross border, right? I mean, you need basically different regulators to come together to, to step the, yeah, sure. step up the governance and uh, that. Would that ever take place? Because you always have, um, I don't know, a few countries who are not willing yeah. to, to to comply and who are benefiting from not complying. Well, news just think about this. The news is that Singapore has officially started to take a stance on it, right? Vietnam is building it into their next five-year, pl whatever plan it is. That I think it's their, Vietnam is writing it into their, their policy making. There's quite a few countries who are doing it themselves, but I guess, yeah, then you, you need to go across countries to the link up to, I guess. So yeah, it's still quite yeah. far. I mean, if that, I mean, I think in that scenario, it would probably just be led by like one of like either the U.S. or China, right? I mean, the U.S. does this everywhere. They they That's impose true. their financial rules on the rest of the world with very few exceptions, yeah, right? As, as the, yeah, yeah. I mean, as as U.S. citizens, I mean, we, Alex and I are U.S. citizens, so we we have the pleasure of dealing with this every single year come tax season. Basically, like if you want, they, they essentially what they say is like, you know, if you want to do business in the US, like to a foreign bank, you have to comply with our rules and regulations and everyone complies yeah. because that's what it is. And I think this will be end up eventually being the same. One of the two major markets, whenever China launches their state-backed version of this, right, they'll probably roll out some similar program and the US will most likely do it at the same time. And, I, and Alex, well, is, I think it also depends on just like, yeah, how many people lose money and how much money, you know, whether that matters politically. But the only problem is then the government has to come up with their own chain with the most decentralized 
way or nodes because it, you can't actually technically regulate the technology, right? You can't stop it if it's centralized enough. If it's say, you know, it's it's even more decentralized than, than Bitcoin, like you can't just turn it off, right? So it will be kind of interesting how it how that does get regulated, I guess, right? But you can impose I mean, standards. They, they already do. I mean, I a lot like of, the exchanges, I guess. A lot of the know. exchanges already have KYC yeah, built into it. I mean, any yeah. any the um, uh, what is the word when they actually own the coin for you? I can't remember. Yeah. I can't think of the top of my head. Um, all the KYC requirements already. So I mean, we're it's not like this is a far stretch. Yeah. Well, this, this sorry, all the custodial exchanges already have KYC yeah. requirements. So. So this is relevant as long as this is a big asset class, but not taken over as fiat itself. But right. but, but 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 how much of that is because of uh, regulatory pressure? How much of that is because they want to protect themselves? I mean, it's both. But that's yeah. that's a I point. Mean, that's that's a point of regulate. I mean, that's a point of complying with regulatory pressure. Is you want to protect yourself from whatever hammer that the government's mm -hmm. going to throw at you. And and last year and a half, you see so many crypto exchanges. I mean, shifting their their jurisdictions. Yeah, we're. Where have you seen? Where have you seen? I haven't yeah. followed. Hmm? I haven't followed the story. You see, you see people move from Hong Kong to Singapore. I mean, people move from Singapore to Dubai. People from, move from Hong Kong to Bahamas. Uh, yeah. But there, what right is there. that? So Why are they doing it? Is it to stay ahead of, is it for more favorable regulatory environment or is it, uh, well, why are they doing it? I don't think it's just for the, for the sunny weather. <laughs> I, know, I know. That's why I'm asking the question. <laughs> But I think re regulations play, play a large part of that. I mean, uh, if you if you look at what's happened in China, they basically took a very strong stance of cracking down all the crypto activities. I mean, they sent um, they they basically sent officials to 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 to, to local counties to to basically inspect to make sure that okay, the that the local government doesn't protect any any miners and doesn't supply electricity to any miners. Yeah, they sent notes to to Ali Cloud to to uh, to ask them to um to basically uh, go through all their customer list and uh, and disable all this uh, running crypto. So, so so basically it's a pretty harsh, that, uh, um, harsh way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, just they, like the, how they're trying to stamp out the COVID. So what, what's interesting is that they maybe physically slow down what's like it happening in China as much to the extent they can, which is quite far. But what happened with that phase was that a lot of those miners actually just shifted out. They moved the operations to other countries, but stayed in China still, right? So they just operated abroad. So it didn't stop mining. It didn't stop the technology. Just stopped it from physically being in China. Probably, I think, if I understand that story correctly, when I talk to other mining friends and stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's. I mean, if other if it's you know can exist somewhere else, it's just going to shift around. You know, the technology itself, if it's decentralized enough, just won't go away. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting Alex, to see how it turns out. Alex, uh, did, did did you discuss about Gcash? No, uh, we you you could talk about it briefly if you want. We don't I, have much time. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can talk on talk on the next time. But uh, but it's an amazing story of cockfighting. I uh, I mean, yeah. What we can do is, you know, we could do uh, a short session. Uh, if uh, again, maybe sometime early next week, if if people are free on GCash alone, if you want. But I think uh, I think we have probably have to close out for this session because uh, Dave's getting very angry. 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 Yeah. yeah. Sorry, it's true. I, I yeah, no, we, we did cover a lot. So, but I mean, yeah, I think the Gcash story might be interesting. I'm curious to hear what you think because when I when I researched it, it just seemed like a bunch of really well funded, market dominant distribution players coming together to deploy. I think all that was able to take over. But yeah, 
I think I think the bigger story behind it is that uh, is that I mean, lots of people try to build wallets in Southeast Asia, and okay. um, and uh, and I think the last last year, year and a half, so people came to this belief that okay, if you just do all the payment, you are not going to make money. And uh, but uh, but if you look at Gcash, uh, they turned um, profitable. So so how how they do that, and what that's yeah. applicable to to other wallets in in Thailand, in Malaysia, in uh, Indonesia. So so okay, so I fair enough. Interesting. Yeah, story. We should address next time. Yeah. That was my takeaway too. Like, how does it apply to the rest of Southeast Asia? But I think there's yeah. very different specific macro dynamics that point to the favors in Philippines. But, uh, you know, let's discuss that next time and we'll give a little teaser for our audience. Of course. Okay. okay thank you. Enjoyed your, your, uh, mm-hmm. Thank you for your episode. And uh, we'll see you next time, guys. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.